Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 21, he commands the Christians there to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. To be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The term subject is a word that we're all too familiar with here at Pierce Point, and that term is hupotasso. Uh, I've had you guys say that before many times, hupotasso. And the word, the word literally translates to obedience. It literally translates to, uh, to submission. Uh, this is the same word that we see in the very next verse of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, uh, concerning wives towards their husbands. It's the same word that we have spent uh, a, at least the past two weeks on in Romans 13, uh, specifically Romans 13, 1, for citizens under a governing body. So the, the idea of submission is clear in Scripture. The idea uh, or this, this, this concept that I want to talk about in 521 is often referred to as mutual submission, uh, and it is not without controversy. So if you've ever studied this or if you've ever wrestled with this principle, uh, you, you probably are familiar with the controversy. Uh, it's either challenged by those who uh, don't like the idea uh, and, and kind of willfully try to erase it from the scriptures, or it's misrepresented by Christians. But uh, both are done in order to fit a particular agenda. The goal is to kind of... Uh, communicate their ideas into the scripture. By the way, there's a term for that. It's called eisegesis, and that is when we read our ideas, we read our agendas into scripture. Uh, there is a real serious problem with interpreting the Bible this way. It can then mean anything that you want it to mean, and the problem with the Bible, if it means anything you want it to mean, then it means precisely nothing at all. <laughs> so exegesis is the really important, uh, important principle that we have to live by. Today in the message, I hope to show you that mutual submission is not only biblical um, but, and therefore good, but it's also uh, important to understand how it plays out. That's where I think a lot of the conflict comes from, how it plays out. And I'm going to share with you a 30,000-foot view that the Apostle Paul seems to clearly understand of why mutual submission is in fact so important. So a lot of what I have to do today is, is straight from a very long study that I've put together and I've, I've been working through. So uh, you'll have to bear with me. This won't be as, uh, as um, it won't be as uh, animated as Nathan normally is because if I get off my notes, uh, my goodness, we might burn the place down. So the reason that I want to deal with uh, this particular issue within our series on Romans is actually th that it helps augment our understanding of the value of submission. It will, it will increase, it will add to, it will help us in our understanding. See, the Apostle Peter tells us that we are to submit to every human institution, and I'll let you spend your days figuring out uh, how vast that instruction is. The Apostle Paul speaks to submitting to governing authorities, among many other things. But the question that we need to ask uh, in these instructions is why? Um, and the answer is because it serves a much greater purpose of showing the world what our true hope is. 
When the Apostle Paul, or when the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have, his instruction is actually firmly rooted within the context of submission to authority. You can spend some time studying that on your own, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13 and going to 16. Peter is not giving us an isolated teaching about defending particular doctrines or theologies. Is that important? Should should we be ready to give a defense for particular doctrines and ideas? Absolutely. But it's important that we always read instruction through the filter of the context provided for us. Instead, we're actually uh, to give a defense or to show people why, in fact, we live the way we live in mutual submission or, in his context, in submission to governing authorities. And the truth of the matter is that we will show them the hope that we have, which is that God is on the throne and we have nothing to worry about. If God is on the throne, then Christians don't need to panic. So at the outset, as a kind of disclaimer, I want to stress that mutual submission does not imply an abandoning of leadership in the Scripture. There is clearly a hierarchy or a leadership structure in the pages of Scripture. Some have asserted that to advocate for mutual submission uh, or everyone submitting to everyone uh, will move necessarily towards theological liberalism and more specifically egalitarianism. That term is big and fancy and it simply is interpreted as uh, being equal in, in both leadership and, uh, and uh, power uh, among genders. And I'll explain why that that's different. But this is, this is only true. We're only going to move towards a liberal idea or we're only going to move towards this egalitarian concept, which, by the way, in case you want to know, is a holdover from uh, feminism, just so you know. Um, uh, the idea of egalitarianism and any move towards that or person... It will move towards liberalism if the person advocating for mutual submission is also advocating for um, no leadership structure whatsoever. But my contention is this, that if you maintain mutual submission and you maintain that there are clear biblical leadership roles, then what you arrive at is what the Bible says. It's actually what the scriptures teach us. So where do we begin with all of this? And I know you guys are like, I am so excited about this message. Well, you will be at the end when I show you the 30,000 foot view, I promise. So where do we begin? The same place that we always begin. The same place that I always begin. Do you know where that is? Context, (laughs) which is the context of the Bible, absolutely. The context of chapter 5, and you can you can follow through with me on Ephesians 5. The context of chapter 5 up to this point is rooted firmly in chapter 4, verses 30 and 32, in which the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesian Christians that they are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How many of you are on board? You don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. You don't want God to be uh, scratching his head and saying, what are these people of mine actually doing? So he tells them not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, how do we do that? How do we grieve the Spirit of God? Well, it's, it's not as much... As I, was, I remember when I was a kid in, in the Pentecostal church, it's, it's not some strange uh, you know, idea of you not following through with a spiritual gift or an idea like this. Paul goes on to speak of this uh, specifically. He says that bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander 
all are a part of grieving the Spirit of God. So just take that into consideration when you, when you think, I don't want God's heart to be grieved. Every time we are a people of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, or slander, we are grieving God's Spirit. According to the Apostle Paul, we must put these actions away. But as a good pastor, and this is what I really love about Paul, uh, as a good pastor, Paul doesn't just simply point out the problem. He also provides a solution. And his solution is far more than just don't do that. Fathers, let me speak to you for a second. Please instruct your children why they shouldn't do what they're doing or give them another behavior that they should <laughs> practice instead of just stop that. You've not helped anything. They just feel like you're against them, okay? So Paul says more than just put it away. He goes into detail and he says this. He says you're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. This is all in 30 through 32 of chapter 4. Note the phrase in verse 32 though. Here's what it says, be kind one to another. Where have we seen that phrase before? It's chapter 5, verse 21. Be kind one to another. Exact same phrase, exact same Greek words as 521. Wayne Grudem, who is a valuable and respected scholar and a brother in Christ, wrote an article called The Myth of Mutual Submission. Okay? He doesn't agree with this interpretation of mutual submission. In it, he says that the phrase, one to another, should instead be translated, some to others. Some to others. But as we've seen from chapter 4, there's an obvious problem with this idea. Simply put, it would render chapter 4, verse 32, to say this, that Christians should be kind, some to others. I'm good with it. <laughs> I'm good with it. It's not biblical, but I'm good with it, okay? Because sometimes we don't want to be kind. The scripture is clear. The fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit, is kindness. And so we're to be kind one to another. What Mr. Grudem doesn't understand, or what Mr. Grudem goes on to do, and he doesn't understand, is he makes the case uh, for his interpretation of some to others by using a passage, by using passages of scripture scattered throughout the whole text of God's word. Among those scriptures, which I don't have time to go into, uh, it's questionable even those scriptures, whether it can be interpreted his way. But the Apostle Paul, within a mere 20 verses, speaks the exact same phrase which helps us to understand the words that he's using. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he means what he clearly says. Be subject everyone to everyone in the fear of Christ, right? Be subject everyone to everyone or one to another in the fear of Christ, just as in chapter 4, 32, he means what he says. Be kind everyone to everyone. Mr. Grudem is one, of the, uh, is one that fears this slide towards liberalism. But we don't have to, and this, is, this happens a lot in scripture, uh, in, in theological studies. It doesn't mean we have to reinterpret the scripture in order to prevent this from happening. My argument is that we just need to keep reading the scripture. If we keep going, we will find out exactly what the Apostle Paul means by all of these ideas. So you see that Paul goes on to say from chapter 4 through the end of chapter 6 is actually going to set each piece of this straight, okay? In chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, and we're just going to walk through this really quickly. You'll just have to track with me. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, Paul makes an often missed but significant case that we are not to look like the rest of the world. This is verse 8. 
How many of you know that we are to be set apart? We are not to look like the rest of the world. This is a problem in the church because all too often we look just like everybody else. Instead of our former narcissistic way of life, what does that mean, Nathan? It means I, me, mine. (laughs) Instead of life being all about me, we are to walk in a newness of life that reflects the glory of God rather than falling short of it. This is a key idea. We're to reflect the glory of God rather than fall short of it. We're to reflect the glory of God rather than what Paul has told us in Romans 3 is the great problem with the world, that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul first exhorts the church to walk in love. That's found uh, in verse 1. But then in verse 3, he shows that we are to avoid immorality, impurity, and greed. Anybody here mastered that? immorality, impurity, and greed. Maybe, maybe you don't struggle with those, but we'll keep going. Paul goes on to say that these things shouldn't even be named among the people of God. He, can, he continues by calling out filthiness, silly talk, and coarse jesting. I had somebody, uh, talk, somebody argue with me not too terribly long ago about the idea of Christians and cursing saying all kinds of uh, manner of bad words, right? And I know I'm looking at you and you're going, "Uh uh-oh, is he talking about me? Anyway, so I've... I've talked to somebody about this, and their, uh, their principle was, uh, the Bible tells us not to curse. Well, sure, the Bible does tell us not to curse. Half of the words that we use in today's world, just so you know, are not curses. They're slang, crass terms that actually have little to no meaning. Do they fall under the guise of cursing? No. But do they fall under the guise of needless talk or silly banter or foolish talk? Yes, they do. So it doesn't matter how you argue this case. God says, I need you to watch your tongue. So we're not to be a people of filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, all of which, according to verse 4, are not fitting for God's people. Again, he provides solutions and not just a criticism when he calls the people to thanksgiving. I love this idea here, though. It's important to note that gratitude towards God, not just gratitude in general, not just being grateful to your neighbor or or to the person who, you know, bought you something, but gratitude towards God is an antidote to filthy talk and a destructive tongue. Gratitude is an, not the, but an antidote towards filthy talk uh, and towards, uh, towards this destructive tongue that we have. James talks about our tongues, and uh, he provides a, a, a situation in which he says, Should it be that out of the same mouth come blessings to God and cursings to men? The answer is no. He's not saying this is just the way it is, deal with it. He's saying it shouldn't be this way. So if we will overcome this with gratitude, we will leave these things behind. And yet again, in one more area, we will walk away from the way we used to be. Following this, Paul presents a stark warning. Listen to this warning, church. He says, people who practice such wicked things will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 5. Gulp. Thought we were saved by grace. You are saved by grace. And people of grace, in view of mercy, live in a righteous manner. They live holy and pleasing to God. This is really important. Paul even seems to anticipate 21st century objections when he warns against those deceivers, he says in verse 6, who attempt to downplay both sin and holiness within the church. He says that the wrath of God is waiting for such as these. 
Paul then goes on and he calls the Ephesians to leave that former life behind and walk as children of light, verses 8 through 11. Very powerful stuff. The fruit of this, Paul says, is goodness, righteousness, and truth. You want to know what the fruit of your life is if you're surrendered to Jesus? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. This is how you are identified in your life. I love, though, in verse 10, that this new way of living is said to be our way of learning how to please God. Please underline that in your Bible. It says that doing this, in doing this, we are learning how to please God. When we were saved, when we surrendered to Jesus at the call of the gospel, we did not know immediately everything we needed to know. We learn how to please God. This is yet again another text that gives uh, scriptural proof for progressive sanctification. That, that over time, we're learning, we're growing, we're looking more and more like Jesus. How are we to, to learn and grow? By submitting to the very fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. What comes next, though, is unheeded uh, as well in the church today. Paul says, do not participate in the old life a life of darkness, but rather expose it, underline that, expose it, and don't even talk about what they do in secret. These are verses 11 and 12. Now, I know that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruffle a little bit here. A couple of observations. Number one, all too often I hear Christians talking about their former way of life in a, in a tone of pride and a tone of fondness. Your... Uh, Sexual escapades before you were married or before you were redeemed are not things that bring a smile to any Christian's face, or shouldn't. And yet so often people go, oh man, if you would have known me back then, wow. And I'm going, why are you laughing about this? The right way is, man, you wouldn't have wanted to know me then. How many of you feel that way? People would not have wanted to know you then. I'm grateful that that is a thing of the past. All too often, Christians brag, it seems. Brag without bragging about all of their past issues. The second observation that I would make from this text is that uh, it says we're not even to speak about the things which are done in secret. And yet, all too often, Christians seem to be willing to watch this stuff on television. Do we think that Paul's instruction doesn't apply across the board? It doesn't apply to what we take in through our eyes and through our ears? Church, I, I know what this is going to make me sound like. I know that people go, ah, fuddy-duddy, good. I'll be a fuddy-duddy then. But what I want you, want you to understand is that true Christians care about holiness. In view of mercy, Christians submit themselves to the commands and the call of God in every aspect of their life. We should take this seriously. Do you know why the world doesn't ask us of any kind of hope that we have? Because we watch the same junk they watch. We participate in the same things they participate. And we simply say, but I'm saved by grace. So grace can abound, but you will let sin abound all the more? What sense does that make? Nathan, there's no fun then in the Christian life. No, 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 no. You need to redefine fun. Because fun is honoring God. It is submitting to him. Trust me when I say the greatest joy in life comes when we are in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. When we are walking humbly before our God. We are to take this seriously. 
So Paul continues to teach this church. And by the way, this church is something that was unheard of in in human history. It was an assembly of men and women, children, husbands, wives, masters, slaves, fathers, children, all of these things. Everybody was together, governors and citizens. Everybody is all in one place. And so Paul teaches that church, as they're all sitting together around the communion table, he teaches them that they are to be nothing like the rest of the world. So you're asking the question, or maybe you're asking the question, what in the world does this have to do with mutual submission? Well, it has everything to do with it. In Paul's final instruction among these verses listed in 15 through 20, which I don't have time to go into, uh, he tells us precisely where we started. He says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What does it mean to be altogether unlike the rest of the world? To be subject to one another. Of course, we're not to live in sin, but the context includes mutual submission. It means that we don't lord it over each other like the Gentiles do. It means that we don't believe that our place is is one of special rank or superiority. Instead, it's an office of calling. It's an office of opportunity. It's an office of service to the Most High God who bought us at a price. Every father in this room needs to understand, not only are you called to be the head of your household, you should be humbled to be the head of your household. This is a righteous calling. It is a big deal. And the same God that says, knock off your sinning and knock off your coarse jesting is the God who says, I want you as well to participate in this concept of mutual submission. To be holy, to be altogether set apart, is in fact to be a people who submit one to another. So I've made the case that mutual submission is biblical. We've seen it in 4.32 and 5.21. We've also made the case that there's a hierarchy inside of God's kingdom. But in case you forgot this, Scripture is clear. There are governing officials over their citizens. There are elders over the church. There are husbands over their households. All of these things are clear in Scripture. So what's the real issue? Quite simply, it's not an issue of whether or not we should submit to one another, but rather how mutual submission plays out in each individual life And what that submission ultimately says about God and says about what he is doing in our um, counter-cultural living. In chapter 5, verse 22, Paul does not break from his train of thought. Please track with me. Go to verse 22. He does not break from his train of thought. He doesn't all of a sudden just say, okay, let me teach you some independent ideas or doctrines on how wives should be and how husbands should be, how fathers should be, how children should be, masters and slaves. Instead, in accordance with the rest of Ephesians, the whole book, And I'll make the case in a second, all the way back to Genesis 3, he is setting out the guidelines for mutual submission. He's going to tell us what it looks like. He's going to tell us what it means in the larger view of redemption history. And Paul is actually going to answer issues of the curse in Genesis 3. Paul knows his Bible. We don't. We all too often read these texts as isolated texts. Just spend a second on this. We read them as isolated texts, as though Paul wrote to the Ephesians or he wrote to the Romans in a vacuum. Paul doesn't ever unhitch any of Scripture from any of the rest of Scripture. Paul is firmly rooted in the Old Testament covenants. 
He is firmly rooted in the God of the Old Testament. And he knows what he is doing, that same God. He knows what he's doing in the New Covenant. So to read our text or read our scriptures uh, as though they're in a vacuum uh, leads us to come up with all kinds of weird little obscure doctrines that we fight over in the church. We fight over these doctrines when, if we'll take a step back and look at the whole of scripture, it actually helps us to see that Paul is dealing with a whole different issue, an issue altogether different than what we're arguing at times. So I told you that, that some either challenge or misrepresent this command. Here's a few of those challenges. Some will say, but Paul expressly calls wives to submit. I, I love this challenge, right? They expressly calls wives to submit, which is true, and he never calls a husband to do the same. Their argument, even further still, uh, rightly shows that God's word from Genesis to Revelation, church, from Genesis to Revelation, never uses the phrase, husbands submit to your wives. So that's one argument. It's the argument from context. It's the argument from expressed wording. And then there's an argument that says that the order of submission in the scripture is never reversed. And I love this argument because it cracks me up. They haven't read their Bible. So, so what do we say to these challenges? Number one, the context argument. In light of Ephesians 4.32, Ephesians 5.21 clearly says what it says. Everyone is to submit to everyone. If a person disagrees with this idea, the burden of proof falls on them and they can't make their case from Scripture. Which, if you're a Christian, that's the place you make your case. You don't make it anywhere else. However, we still have a responsibility in this argument. And that is that we have to show that each party, men and women, are called uh, husbands and wives, children and fathers, slave and master. We are called uh, to submission and what it looks like in each particular context. Listen to me very clearly on this. We can submit to one another in a general Christian sense. Do you know that? Every one of us should submit to one another in a general Christian sense. Honor one another is more important than yourselves. Who's ready for that one? Man, I'll tell you what, I suck the air straight out of the room in this sermon. It makes me happy. Even though we're supposed to submit one to another... And we're supposed to honor or prefer one another as more important than ourselves. You, you do realize that the scripture is also clear that uh, wives are to submit to their own husbands. Do you know that? So we're sitting around the table on Tuesday night and we're talking about these kinds of things. And, uh, and Tina asked me a question. Okay, she, she looks at me, this is our elders group, and Tina looks at me and she asks me a question, and it was a question of authority, it was a question of should I or shouldn't I, and Barney is sitting right there, and I said, I don't know, ask him, right, you know, and she's like, oh yeah, what, what is that, you know, Barney of course felt great about that, anyway, but, but the, the, the real important thing is here, Paul makes a distinction, he says, wives are to submit to their own husbands, uh, scripture doesn't say, no matter what anybody tells you, Scripture does not say that women are subject to men, but wives to husband. The context of God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman is the context of marriage. All of this is submission, but it plays out in different ways. So number one, context supports mutual submission, contrary to those arguments. Number two, mutual submission exists even though the word hupotasso doesn't appear in each individual case. In chapter 6, 1 and 6, 5, notice these, children and servants respectively are told to obey. But you know what's interesting about that, that phrase, those verses? Hupatasso is not the word used. It's a der derivation. It's hupakuo, which simply translates to listen. 
But nobody would infer that because hupotasso is not present or submission is not present, like it is present for husbands and wives or governing officials and their citizens, that a child should not submit to their father. No one would assert that. Would you? Children should submit. So just because the word isn't there doesn't mean we get to just say, okay, children are free to do whatever they want. Heck no. I got four little girls. This is not a good rule, okay? So one, the context proves the case. Number two, the absence of a term doesn't prove anything. Let me give you an example. The Trinity. The word Trinity never appears in the Bible. And yet we know that God is three who's and one what. We know that he is a Trinity. Number three, some will say that leadership order is never reversed in Scripture. What they mean is that mutual submission can't be possible because Scripture never expressly tells masters to submit to slaves or that uh, parents shouldn't submit to their children, humanity shouldn't submit to Jesus or Jesus to humanity. Uh, I, I reverse that. But none of these circumstances are ever reversed, is their argument. It's simply not true. It's just simply not true. After Paul states that Christians are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, he goes on to explain what submission looks like in each particular case. In 6.1, he tells children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. We understand that they are to live in obedience to their parents, submitting to their parents as a way of their mutual submission. However, he then says to fathers that they're not to provoke their children to anger. This is where it gets controversial. This is a form of mutual submission. This is a form of coming under. Oh, Nathan, I disagree with you. Some will say that if this is, that this, if this is submission, it's a submission to God alone. This isn't a submission to your own children. Well, I agree with you that it is a submission to God. But the next instruction about slaves and masters proves my point. Slaves are to be obedient to those who are their masters according to the flesh. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 7. With goodwill... Render service as to the Lord. Who are you uh, submitting to when you submit to earthly institutions? Who are you submitting to when you mutually submit one to another? You're submitting to the Lord. Because when we obey God's word, which commanded us to do so, we are consequently submitting or in obedience to him. Living in proper submission or mutual submission is the biblical model. But now for the big reversal. Immediately after Paul says that slaves are to be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as you would to Christ, look at what verse 9 says. Please follow with me. And masters do the same thing to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Do the same things as them? Did you hear that? The same thing, the content of do the same things is found in verses 5 through 8. Slaves submit to your masters and masters submit to your slaves. The slave is to be obedient and the master the same, but in the context of not being harsh, not being oppressive, not like the rest of the world. Do you see the connection there? It's re really important that we see it. Make no mistake, it's mutual submission. So if the image in Ephesians 6 doesn't convince you of this, let me give you the words of Jesus in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. These are, these are Jesus' words. When James and John send their mommy to ask Jesus to put them into places of prestige and honor, and yes, they sent their mommy to do it, um, Jesus doesn't say, 
There's no such thing as leadership structure in the kingdom of God. At the end of his correction of them, he actually says, the places you're seeking are my father's to give. He acknowledges that they are places, but they're his father's to give. But look at what he says. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. This is Matthew 20. But whoever wishes to become great among you, notice there's an order, there is greatness, there is some sort of rank, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first, there's an order, first, second, third, it keeps going, among you shall be your slave. But look at what Jesus says next. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Based on the context, Jesus just declared himself, the one who is Lord of all, he just declared himself to be a slave, to be a servant. He came to serve us at the command of his Father, at the willing obedience to his Father, but he came to serve us and not to be served by us. Anyone who concludes that the order is not reversed in Scripture doesn't know what submission means, and they don't know what the scriptures say. If we say that order is to be reversed uh, in, in a way that the wife becomes the head of the household, the Bible doesn't agree with you. Okay? Hear me clearly. If we're saying that the order is reversed, and it doesn't matter, and therefore the wife is the head of the household, you are, you are at odds with the word of God. Word of God. But if we are saying that as the head of the household, the husband is to submit himself to his wife by loving her and willingly, willingly laying down his life for her, then there's no way around it. There's no wiggle room, men. There's no wiggle room. You die and you have to understand who your example was. I've even heard people say the Bible doesn't call fathers to serve. They're called to lead. Nonsense. Jesus is your example. What did he do? Came to serve, not to be served. You die. I know that that hurts. I know that that's frustrating. But we, listen, if I can do nothing in the time that I spend in this church until I die, because you ain't getting rid of me that quick, uh, if I can do anything, it would be to raise men who understand what it means to love, what it means to serve, what it means to lay down their lives. All of that is biblical leading. All of that is biblical headship. What a beautiful, beautiful idea. So let's keep, let's keep working through this. Here's where the story gets super exciting. I love this idea. We've looked at the challenges, right, and misrepresentations. So we're not leaning towards liberalism or, or egalitarianism. We're understanding a complementarian mindset that is firmly rooted in the biblical text. We've also seen that submission plays out in unique ways, but it's submission nonetheless. Here's the big picture. The instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to each people group listed in Ephesians 5 and 6 is a direct response to Genesis 3. But if you don't know Genesis 3, you don't know that it's a direct response. What did God say to the woman was her curse? He says this. He says, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. He says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And here's the critical line. Listen to it, church. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is all in verse 16, okay? Genesis 3, 16. If you read that without context, and you read that without an understanding of language from the past, 
you will conclude that this is completely different from what it says. You'll conclude that the actual curse in Genesis 3 is that you have pain or increased pain in childbearing and that you'll have a ruling oppressive husband. That's not the curse. It's not the curse. The curse is something different. What does it actually say? The ESV translates the statement this way. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What the curse shows about the women, and I know I've picked on men now, I'm going to pick on women, and you're not going to like me, but it's okay. What it says here, the curse says about women, is that she will have pain in childbirth, this is the curse, and that she will try to usurp her husband's authority all the days of her life. Smile. Don't you love me? No, you don't right now, but it's okay. Just in case you don't like the ESV translation, say it's just some kook that translated it wrong, look at Genesis 4. Genesis chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. In chapter 4, God is speaking to Cain, and he uses the exact same phrase. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. I love the fact that that's a post-fall man who is able to do right. Yet, he has to be diligent against sin. Okay? Look, look at this, though. He says, and its desire, what is its in this context? Sin. Its desire, sin's desire is for you. You know that that doesn't say sin wants to buy a house with you in the in the Bahamas and uh, hang out with you. It just desires you. It just loves you. What is sin wanting to do? The same thing that we read about wives in, in Genesis 3. It wants to rule you. But what is our instruction? Every one of us, men and women across the board, we must master it. Its desire is for you. Same phrase as Genesis 3. Its desire is for you that, and you must uh, rule over it. This is what the scripture communicates. What's my point? What does Ephesians 6 specifically say to the wife? It's not out of context. The Apostle Paul knows the Bible better than we do. The Apostle Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Paul is not ignorant of Genesis 3. He knows full well what he's saying. He is saying to them, do you remember at the beginning uh, of, of time, do you understand what happened, that you're supposed to rule over your husband, but you're a Christian, and you're to submit to your husband. You're going to do what the world doesn't do. You're going to not live under the curse any longer. Those people are still under the weight of sin and death, but we have been bought at a price. We were formerly children of darkness, but now we're children of light. We once walked in all of those ways that are unfit for the kingdom of God. And now we walk to the glory of God, not even speaking of the things that we were formerly done. We no longer live in a contentious way towards one another, church. But instead, we walk in a newness of life. The woman no longer wars in a redemptive context. The woman no longer wars against her husband, but instead submits to him out of the fear of God. This is an amazing idea, and this is why it's so important to connect what Paul said in Ephesians 5 with what we read after this. All of this is living contrary to the rest of the world. All of this is the same thing. 
take God's instruction to Adam in verse 17 through 19 of Genesis 3. He says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and had eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Where do men spend their strength, church? Scripture instructs us not to spend it on women, but that is one place that is done. What does it mean if a man spends his strength on other women? It means he's not loving his wife. Understand the connection here. But throughout human history, men have spent their strength on their work, on their agendas, on loving themselves. It has been, uh, it has been narcissism since day one. We, 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 me, me, me. That's what we're all about. What, therefore, is the instruction given to men in Ephesians 5? Love your wives because you don't do it. Love your wives. He doesn't say women are supposed to submit to their husbands, but men, you're free. No, it's mutual submission. How does it play out? Wives, submit to your husband and counteract Genesis 3. Husbands, love your wives and counteract Genesis 3. You're not supposed to be like this. In the garden, the scriptures tell us that as Eve took the fruit, she gave it to her husband, who was with her, mind you. Good old Adam. Hanging out right next to her, doing absolutely nothing. What should Adam have done? His job. <laughs> what, sh- what do women most likely want us to do, most of the time want us to do? Do our job. That's not an irrational criticism. That's a biblical criticism. Adam should have slain the dragon and won the girl. Instead, he let the dragon slay the girl. In light of that, he's cursed, and so are we. How does the creation order speak to fathers and children, you say? That's fine, husbands and wife, I'll go with you there. Malachi 4.6, the scripture tells us that after Pentecost, one of the great signs that the Spirit of God dwells with men is that the hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children and the children to the fathers. Ephesians 6 is a direct statement to Genesis 3. Fathers, obey. Fathers, uh, don't provoke your children to wrath. Your heart should be for them. Children, obey your fathers. The story of God's redemption continues to unfold when we see slaves and masters submitting to one another because their master is the same master. It's God in heaven. God's word says that in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Gentile nor Jew. It doesn't mean that there aren't ethnic distinctions or gender distinctions. It means that God loves all. He is loving each one, no partiality, Galatians 3.28. Mutual submission is not only biblical, it is a direct affront to the curse. It is a sign of hope for the world. So much so that they would ask for the hope that we have. And our response to this is a reasoned defense that says, we submit out of the fear of Christ. Jesus is on the throne. What have we to fear? I don't have to worry about my position or my rank or my authority in in a human setting. I know what God has given me. I know what he has called me to. This is important for us to realize. So let's look uh, at, in closing, let's look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Paul says this, 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. By the way, all in the same context. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Based on the context, what do you think the schemes of the devil are? It's not him just saying, here's an here's a opportunity to cheat on your taxes. Based on the context, it's this. Not only does he want to convince us not to be holy or to look just like the world, he also wants us, the devil also wants us to live in division among one another, continually trying to lord it over each other. Paul goes on to say, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, our battle is not a husband against his wife. It's not the battle. I hate that that's the battle in the church so often. I hate that that's the battle across the board. But it is not our battle. We shouldn't look like the rest of the world. It's not a father against his child or a slave against their master, but rather against a spiritual deceiver who is continually trying to disrupt unity, a unity that is found in Christ alone. This unity is a unity of mutual submission, and it's out of the fear of God. Then Paul's classic instruction about the armor of God goes this way. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. What is truth? That we no longer, in the context, that we no longer live as the world does. That we are not a part of the curse. That we live contrary to that story. He continues, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What a great thing to know that our hearts are protected through faith in the righteousness given to us on the cross. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of what church? Peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of Faith, with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The first piece to note of this is the gospel is one of peace, not dissension. And the second to understand is it is the shield of faith, and you're able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Listen to me, church. When the devil says to men, you should tell everybody who's boss. Shut up and do what I say and go make me a sandwich or some nonsense worldly interpretation of this idea. Your response, what is it? I finally got a laugh out of you. Your response is, men, husbands, I will lead my house like Christ. I will do so in the love and admonition of my father. I will lay down my life for those who are in my charge. I will not provoke my children to anger, but I will obey my God who is in heaven. That is your response. Because that's what the Bible calls you to. When the devil says to women, you should take control. He's just lazy. He never initiates anything. Your response, you know that's true. Your response is, I will submit to my husband because I know that my God is in control. And even if my husband lacks understanding, I can win him over through my reverence before my God. What is faith? Not only is it the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, but it is also basically understood as trust. The shield of faith is a shield of trusting God. A shield that prevents the enemy's lies from getting to you. Just as we saw Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil and told lies from the scripture, mind you, Jesus responded with the right scripture. And he responded by a faith trusting in what God has truly said. Paul then talks about the helmet of salvation, the renewing of our minds, the sword of the spirit, mind you, that's the only offensive weapon you have. The very word that says that we are to submit to one another, church, is the very word that you heard the gospel through. So take my warning very clearly. 
If you accept the gospel, but you don't accept the practice, you are picking and choosing. You're Thomas Jefferson. You're marking out the things in your Bible that you just don't like. No go. No go. You want the gospel? Take everything that comes with it. You want the gospel? Take everything that comes with it. I don't think you hear me. You, t- you want the gospel? Of course you do. You take everything that comes with it. And you trust him completely. Paul's instruction to the church in Ephesus is to pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, to be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. What's the context that informs this prayer? That we look nothing like this world. That we live in mutual submission. We live completely contrary to those around us. So why does all of this matter? This is the conclusion. Why does all of it matter? Why take a Sunday off from a series on Romans to talk about mutual submission? Do you want to make enemies, Nathan? (laughs) No. But because as we read through passages that tell us to submit to governing authorities, and we end up with a question mark on our head that says, no way. We must understand the the big picture, the huge 30,000-foot view of what this is doing. It is counteracting the curse. Submission says we look nothing like the rest of the world because we trust in a sovereign God who is over all. Do we understand? We have a hope, church. You know what that hope is? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The church has for far too long made this an issue of contention. Constantly trying to wiggle through scriptures to tell us that it doesn't say what it actually says. Or that it says something different. Or we just try to go off with the magic marker and mark it out of our Bibles. If you accept the gospel, you take what he says. If you take what he says, here's my promise. It is the best life you can ever live. It's the most joyful existence you can ever have. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.